Little guys can go to children's church, and if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it to Matthew chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be some back there, I think. We've been studying through the book of Matthew together, coming up to some wonderful, miraculous events. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, we ask for your help just to keep us focused on what you would have us take away from this because it's your will that matters above all things. And we're just so thankful for the way it presents our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he's everything. And here we see him in great glory. We thank you for him. In his name we pray, amen. So last week we looked at uh, Matthew 14 at the very remarkable miracle of the fish and the loaves, which is famous and that I think I said it's the only uh, miracle that appears other than the resurrection that appears in all four of the Gospels. But it's, uh, it was so impactful at the time because so many people were there. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were there. So that was a big one. This miracle is just as amazing, but it's much smaller in its scope in terms of who actually sees it. So we're going to look at another miracle this morning, um, a very well-known miracle story, the time Jesus came to the disciples walking across the tumultuous waves of the Sea of Galilee, which is physically impossible except for um, God, right? So this miracle has actually entered into our language. You often hear somebody, you ever hear this? Somebody's talking about somebody that's really full of themselves and they say, Betty thinks he can walk on water. You ever hear that kind of, yeah, that's where it comes from, right? comes right out of this story. So that means you think that person thinks they're God on earth. That's kind of what you're implying if you say something like that. So there's a reason for this saying, um, talking about walking on water, because it's an astounding miracle. I mean, just the physics of it is amazing. Um, but it's more remarkable when you actually look at the details of the story and the actual situation. It, it, it's much more than just some physical a reversal of the rules of nature or whatever. The true story of Jesus walking on the water to men who are struggling in a storm-tossed boat that's going nowhere is, can be seen as a story that um, we can relate to in terms of our own struggles and difficulties in our life. It's, it's kind of a living parable about our relationship with Christ and it's okay to see it that way. I, it strongly lends itself to that kind of application and um, I think that is what it's, in, it's here for, in part. Not, not only to tell us how glorious Christ is, but to show us how we relate to him. But let's see it in context here first. It's, it's a story that's entirely about Jesus and the disciples. There's no other characters in it. There's no crowds. There's no Pharisees. There's no demon-possessed people or anything like that. It's just Jesus and his chosen band, his men. And most interestingly, the way Jesus arranges things uh, is really fascinating, and we, we find the disciples in a situation where he is not physically present, and that's key to the whole idea. So let's start at verse 22. That's where it picks up here. It says, immediately, so we're, that's a time word, right? Right away, so we're coming off the previous story, which is about the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. This is a lake, a very large lake, the Sea of Galilee, while he sent the crowds away. So that word immediately suggests that soon after this feeding of all these people and the disciples, after everybody was satisfied collecting the, the bread and bringing it back to the Lord, 
that um, the disciple, he gets, he tells the disciples to get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the lake where, um, and, and then it says at the end, while he sent the crowds away. So that was done immediately and we said last time that Jesus would not send the crowds away. Remember the disciples were like, well, maybe I ought to send them away. So, uh, so they can go find something to eat and we can have a break. And uh, that, that part is not said, it's sort of suggested. But um, he wants to finish with them. So he sends them off and he finishes with the crowd, whatever he was doing with them. He ministered to people one at a time. So anybody that had a need or needed to be healed or something like that, he spent individual time with them. So he finishes up what he's doing and sends them away while they're crossing the lake. Um, so he feels like he can handle the rest by himself, sends them on ahead. And since he's done this right after the meal, it's probably a time when there's, the light is getting, it's, it's the end of a day, the light's going down, the sun's going down, but um, there's still sufficient light for them to make a trip across in a boat under normal circumstances. Um, and the next two verses um, really form a very remarkable picture. You can see what Jesus is doing and what they're doing. So verse 23, after he had sent the crowds away when he was done, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So that's the setup. You're supposed to picture Jesus praying alone and them at the same time, some distance away out on this lake being battered by a very strong wind. It's chopping up the sea there. So you have this smallish boat well away from shore struggling. And Matthew says the boat was battered by waves. Mark in his gospel says they were straining at the oars for the wind was against them. John's gospel, it says, the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So this is one of those nasty squalls that show up on the Sea of Galilee. It's famous for them. They come up real quick. They're um, pretty rough, rough ride. And the force of the wind and the seas against them, they can't get where they're going. So they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing more and more, but they're making no significant headway. They're not getting where he wanted them to go. They're kind of stuck out there. And it's not so much that they were in danger, though they may have been in danger, but it's more that this is an extremely wretched place to be considering their personal experience. That They're getting nowhere. Jesus is sending them. No matter how hard they try, they can't make it. So what do they do? They, they keep trying. They just keep trying. And the Gospels are clear that they left the shore in the evening. And Mark says in his Gospel that they're still fighting the oars, they're still working that, he says, in the fourth watch. So if they left like 6 p.m. or so, the fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. the next day. So can you imagine fighting that? Now, it's not just that. They just came off of working all day with the multitudes who spoiled their vacation and showed up and Jesus' heart went out to them so they all had to serve all that whole day and Jesus served with them and then Jesus sends them off. Jesus is up praying. They're fighting for eight or nine hours trying to get across the, 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 the lake, the Sea of Galilee there. So it's really something. And I, I kind of got to wonder if some of them grumbled at Jesus a little bit for sending them, um, getting them into that mess is maybe the way they might have thought about it. So while they're battling the storm, what's Jesus doing? He's praying in verse 23. He was praying all alone in deep prayer. 
What do you suppose he was praying about? Well, maybe the faith of the disciples who displayed that day they were with the multitude, uh, they displayed a need to grow more in their love. Uh, and he might be praying for their motives, that they would seek God's will and always be ready to serve with that will wholeheartedly, even when it means the loss of comfort and rest. And Jesus didn't pray for 10 minutes and then take a nap while they were straining at the oars all those hours. He's been going for hours himself, working at another kind of labor. Prayer is labor. And he's been laboring in prayer for hours while they're out there rowing really hard. And that labor, we call it intercession. It's, it's praying on another person's behalf. Very important thing to do. So they probably didn't know about that. They're battling the storm. He's praying for them. But I imagine that once this whole thing is over, this whole event, they're going to remember this for many, many years. And that's why it shows up in the Gospels. So if you've ever gone through a storm in life, anybody been through a storm? I don't mean bad weather. I mean, well, it could be that too. But I mean a real difficult time, a strain. You're straining, you're fighting so hard to... uh, make it and you're not seeming to progress, you're not getting anywhere, ever have that feeling? What do you suppose Jesus is doing during your storm? Yeah, Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Jesus Christ, quote, is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. He's doing that work of intercession for us all the time. He's representing your burdens before the courts of heaven even as you struggle with them. That's what he's doing. In fact, as you look at this, you can see a series of facts here which are really comforting for us if we're in a particular storm situation, a difficulty in life. It's great that song we just, two songs ago we just sang. It's all, it's using all this imagery right here out of this text. So they're in the storm. Here's the first fact. They're in the storm because Jesus sent them there. That's the first thing you got to know. It's all part of a plan. Do you think he was unaware of the storm or surprised by it? I don't think so. He's putting them in a tough spot to make them better men, to teach them something. Challenges build strength and character. And this particular challenge, I think, is to build their faith and bring them to the place he wants to bring them in terms of their spiritual growth. So are they going to see him as they row? Are they going to trust him Well, he's praying that they will trust him. So storms in life come for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes God is chastising us to get our attention, to correct us about certain things that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing, gets our attention. Sometimes he's testing us. He's literally putting us in in the blender, if you will, to learn to trust him more, to grow in our faith. Sometimes it's both of those things. But Jesus is getting, he's he's got a job. He's got to get these guys ready to become world-changing preachers, right? He's getting them ready for the big, wide world out there. I mean, these are pretty simple men. They're not unintelligent, but they're not highly educated, and they're not not experienced with the broader world. I mean, they're learning as they're going with him about ministry, but they've led pretty simple lives their, their whole lives. And they're gonna be challenged in the days to come going out into the world with the gospel to all these strange lands, peoples, nations, customs, persecutions in the midst of all of that. Um, 
far beyond what they would have known at this time. It's just going to be, their experiences are things they can't even foresee or really grasp that's coming. And he's not going to be physically present with them when they're doing that, when they're changing the world. So they need to learn how to face storms without his immediate visible presence. So that's what he's helping them do. There was an earlier situation in Matthew chapter 8 with a storm. Remember, that was a dangerous storm. That storm was so bad the ship was going under. And what was Jesus doing? Sleeping. He was physically present, but asleep. And that wasn't enough for them either. So they woke him up. That was a deadly, dangerous storm. But on that occasion, he was actually with them in the boat. But on this particular dark night, straining at the oars, he's not around. He's not around. So, he wants them to learn that he is always present, even when he's not there. Always. We can live our whole lives like he isn't around, but that would be very foolish because he is. He really is. Warren Wiersbe asks a great question. I love this question. How would you handle yourself in a difficult situation if you knew that Jesus was in the very room praying for your success? Would you find it easier? Would you have a little more courage? Would you face it with a little more strength of faith? If he was praying for you right there while you were facing that situation, I, I, think, I think I'd be a lion in that situation. But that's exactly what the reality is. It's exactly what the reality is. So you gotta latch on to that. It's true. Just because you can't visibly see him doesn't mean he's not doing that very thing for you at that particular time. So we need to learn to have enough faith to know that he's with us and praying for us and strengthening us. I think I could take on the world if I saw him there. Just like Peter. Peter was always so brave when Jesus was around. And he, when he wasn't, he wasn't very brave. Until the resurrection, then he knew that Jesus was always going to be with him. But I think I wouldn't be as worried about myself. I can do anything with him. I think I could love other people easier, more freely. I could be more confident, more humble, certainly, with him there. Maybe even become a little bit more like him because he's so close to me. But that's the reality. He is that close to us. So all of those things can be true as we grow in our Christian walk. So, what's Paul say? We walk by faith, not by sight. So we all have to learn to not walk by sight because he's there whether we see him or not. So God, help us have the faith that Jesus wanted these men to have. That's what we should be pleading with him for. So just because Jesus is not in the boat um, this time, it doesn't change anything. He's still in control and he is with them. In fact, he sees them. So keep this fact in mind. He sees them. Mark chapter six, verse eight, which tells the same story. It says, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So it's early in the morning. It's pitch dark. The sea is wild and rough. They aren't getting anywhere. And he comes walking on the sea. How could Jesus see them miles away in the dark in a stormy sea? Well, he's God. That's how. 
The same way he sees you struggling with your rebellious child, the same way he sees your difficult marriage, the same way he sees your intolerable situation at work, or your health issue, I mean, he sees it. He knows it all. And he has things he wants to accomplish in your life just as he has things he wants to accomplish in these guys' lives. He wants you to be more detached from this world. He wants you to live in a way that brings God glory and literally living in a supernatural way, a way that the, might baffle the world because of your strength and your confidence in him, a way that requires trust in him, a way that requires a love, a kind of love this world really can't understand. And that can only be done by understanding that God ordains our circumstances as opportunities to grow and to minister to other people. He sees every bit of it. He's not surprised at all of it. And he's absolutely in control. And he's on our side in that he wants what's truly good for us. So you say, I don't know why he's put me here. It's good for you. And he can do things through you where you are that you can't even see, you don't even know. They didn't know. They didn't know he was coming out there to the boat. So if things get too hairy and you need him to intervene, he's gonna be there. (laughs) Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. So he came to them. So you know, Jesus walking on water is really an amazing miracle, but the interesting thing about it is why he's doing it. They needed him, so he showed up. They needed some direct support. They needed to know he sees them. They needed to know that he has them in his heart. So he came. And I'm quite sure that was his intention all along to teach them this, let them strain at the oars for eight or nine hours, and then he shows up because he had them in his heart the whole time. He was praying for them the whole time. He was there, very aware the whole time. That's a wonderful um, picture of his grace and his love. And there's a wonderful old promise that God gave his people back in Isaiah 43, verse 2, which is metaphorical unless you were those guys in the boat. But the Lord said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That was a promise to Israel. It's a promise to us in all of our circumstances. So yeah, he sent them off without him physically there. He he waited and prayed for them. They were doing what he had asked. That very thing put them in a very difficult situation. They were exhausted, pulling as best they could, straining every muscle to reach the shore. They They were at the end of their strength, and suddenly they see this figure walking through the waves there. And they go, ah! Because it says they think it's a ghost. They don't even, can't even recognize him. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. Because, you know, when you're out in the middle of the lake, and these guys were fishermen, they knew that lake very well. You don't see people walking around out there. (laughs) Just doesn't happen. So they think it's a spirit of some kind, some, you know, some superstitious reaction to that. So, there is something worse than being in a boat, utterly exhausted, rowing for eight hours with no end in sight, fighting a storm. And that worst thing is seeing a ghost just off the bow of the ship. That's even worse. So they cry out in fear. I mean, who wouldn't cry out in fear seeing that? I mean, that would be pretty weird. And then they hear this voice, a familiar voice. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
And Matthew says he immediately spoke those words to them. So he didn't let them scream for long. (laughs) Fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of love. It's easy to let fear take over, to consume us, to take our eyes away from God's purpose. So the part that follows, which is recorded only by Matthew, um, speaks to that very thing. And it's one of those great Peter stories. It's a favorite Mel Abel story as well. You gotta love Peter. What a great guy. Um, He's so impulsive and so clumsy in his love for Jesus, which is absolute. He just loves Jesus, but he's, he's always stumbling around. So Peter said to him, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So his love for Jesus increased his faith and he wanted to be with him. Wherever he is, Peter wanted to be with him. And he knew that if Jesus said he could, he could walk on water. He really believed that. So there's no magic here. There's no latent powers in Peter that Jesus is drawing out of him. Um, Nothing like that. It's just he's asking Christ to suspend the rules of nature for him. And he does it. Jesus says, come. So verse 29, Peter climbs out of the boat onto the tossing waves and starts walking towards Jesus. It's really fun to try to imagine that. You know, I, I, I don't know if you think about it. You, I think we think about this like a, a calm, like you're just walking on water, but it's a storm. The waves are crazy. It would have been just amazing to see that. I try to picture that in my head. But notice again how faith can be eclipsed by fear all of a sudden, verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he said, Lord, save me. There's a direct relationship between fear and sinking. So if you just apply it to any of your circumstances, when you start to fail, it's probably because you're afraid of what's going to happen. You're not trusting enough that whatever's happening is God-ordained and it's the place for you to be and to serve Him and to represent Him and to do His will. That fear is probably the thing that's knocking you back. You start to sink, if you will. Seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, notice it specifically says seeing the wind. So it's emphasizing where he's looking, right? And and by that, it means what had his attention. So he's coming out to see Jesus, and then he's looking around. This is a mess out here. This is wild. He takes his eyes off the Lord. And he's thinking about the potential dangers of being out there, even though Jesus invited him to come. So I'm sure you've heard the expression, keep your eyes on the Lord. I mean, that's literally what we're talking about here. Um, You keep your focus on God through the trials. You keep your focus on his care for you, what you know about him. You keep your focus on his sovereignty. You keep your focus on your position in Christ as a child of God. Did you know that if you're in Jesus Christ and if you belong to him, you're a child of God? That's how he thinks about you got to keep your focus there. He's a compassionate, merciful father to you. So whatever's going on, he's got it. He understands. He's got your back. He made that situation. So your heart 
We're really talking about the eyes of your heart, aren't we? The, the attention has to be on him, primarily. And otherwise, if you start looking around about how bad this thing's getting, you're going to start fearing. And when you fear, you sink. That's it. You start to lose. So what are your fearful circumstances? What deep worry plagues you, ties you up, prevents you from serving Christ the way you want to? If you're looking at that thing, whatever it is, and focused on that, consumed with that, that's what we're talking about, it makes you sink. You can't do that. So the key in the middle of a storm is to focus your heart on Jesus Christ because he will sustain you. It's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't because the thing that's so fearful and difficult is that's what's in front of your face. And that's where walking by faith and not by sight is so key. It's a real thing. And it's very much oppressive to you. But by God's grace, any Christian can do what we're talking about here. It might be the most important spiritual discipline of your life to learn to keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of the storm, whatever your storm is. To keep your eyes, the eyes of your soul on him. So Peter looks away, he starts to sink, and immediately he looks back to Jesus and says, Lord, save me. And then verse 31 contains one of the most beautiful sentences in any language. And the first word is beautiful, immediately. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. I like the way that sounds. That's the response of Christ to the plea, Lord, save me. He reaches out and grabs your hand. And he takes hold of Peter. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you looked away. (laughs) You're just going to have to suffer the consequences. That's not what he says. (laughs) No, he pulls him up. And he doesn't just pull him up, he speaks to him and he asks Peter a, a very gentle and instructive question. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? You were walking on water. Why did you doubt? The word doubt's an interesting word. It really conveys the idea of standing at a place where the path splits in two and not knowing which way to go. Or as the scarecrow would say in The Wizard of Oz, people do go both ways. But um, you don't know, you know, which way you're going to go. But in Peter's case, there should have been no doubt about which way to go here. No doubt at all. We should have no uncertainty regarding God's sovereignty in our situations. And what God wants us to do. I mean, sometimes it's a difficult thing to discern. But generally speaking, if you're following the golden rule and the commandments of the Bible, your path is pretty straight. You really know what you should be doing. So there shouldn't have been any doubt on his mind because Jesus told him, come. And he's actually walking on the water. So we shouldn't have any uncertainty regarding God's sovereignty over our lives. Why worry about the waves if God's in control of the waves? So doesn't that fear come with uh, a tendency to doubt? They, they belong together. The temptation to walk by sight and not trust the Lord is what's going on here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a very well-known passage. A lot of people have memorized it. I'm sure you have tried to memorize it if you haven't done it because it gives such clear direction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There, you got it. And all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You'll know exactly where you should walk. There's not a lot of room for doubt in that verse. 
Doubting the love of God for you is never a good thing. Jesus asked Peter, why did you doubt? Because if we believe God as he has revealed himself to us in scripture, if we believe the promises we have in Christ, doubt doesn't have a legitimate place in us. We just shouldn't be there. Banish it. Just learn to trust. Grow in your trust. Not trust that everything's going to go the way I want it to. That's not what we mean by trust. It's all going to work out for me just fine. Trust is in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's trusting that he is in control. That he has us. He has our back. He's looking out for us. And he will be there when we need him. He'll show up. That's what you're trusting. God, if you only knew, he knows. He knows. Lord, if you could only see, he sees. He's got it all. He knows it all. Whenever I think about the word trust as the Bible uses it here, I I just can't get away from the word freedom. I mean, those don't seem to relate to each other, but it always pops in my head. Because if you're trusting God, you're free. If you're trusting God, you're free of fear. If you're trusting God, you're free of anxiety, um, free from all the temptations to manipulate the situation for your own benefit. You're set free by that if you trust him. Circumstances are up to him. How people respond to me is up to him. But I can just trust him and do my part in whatever the situation is. So there's that voice within us. Maybe it's a very soft and subtle voice, but maybe it's a loud and insistent voice that says, if I don't look out for me, who will? Ever have that voice in your head? Who indeed? Who indeed will look out for you? I get it if a worldly man thinks that way, but the Christian says, that's the voice of my flesh. That's my old self saying that to me. The Christian doesn't listen to that voice because that is a question that's rooted in being lost to God. A lost person has that voice. We're not lost. So the Christian answers that voice with, God is looking out for me. It's real basic. God is looking out for me. He will watch my back. He will protect me as seems wise to him. And who's wiser, me or him? Yeah, I I gotta admit, he's wiser, infinitely wiser. So with him, with him, when I am with him, the world is mine. According to his sovereign will, and it's a good will. And I don't need to be afraid. I'm free to love, I'm free to serve with a whole heart because he's got me. He's mine. He's with me. Why do you doubt, Jesus asks. So as God arranges our circumstances and Jesus prays for us and when the Lord Jesus comes near to us, when everything seems hopeless and we're not gonna make it, he does show up. And he's glorified by that. He wants to show himself able to handle your problems. Maybe not in quite a spectacular way as here. Maybe not walking on the water, but he will make himself known. He'll make his presence known. It's so interesting how often Christians say that when they're in the midst of great trials. I, he's here, I can tell. You know, when the, the Wheelers, their little daughter Bryn we've been praying for, when Jennifer writes so eloquently about all the struggles as a mother of a child with cancer and all the stuff she's going through, she says at the end, she says, his presence is very real. Because it is, he's there for you, no matter what you're going through. His presence is very real. 
So he wants to show us that he's there. We've seen so many examples of this here in our congregation and just the recent struggles we've been having with illnesses and here, all this stuff going on. We have watched you and the faith that's come forth from you knowing that God is present in your circumstances. People that are struggling in horrible relationships, we have watched you flourish in the midst of that, struggling but growing in your faith and doing the right thing. So many examples. And on this day with the apostles, it's really quite amazing. Look at verse 32. When they, meaning Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. So they worship him. Their hearts are just full of praise. As thick as these guys are sometimes, they're realizing some pretty often awesome things. This is no mere man. He's God's son. They recognize it. And after all these men had seen, already Jesus just keeps amazing them. He's, he's amazing in new ways all the time. You see what Matthew's doing here? He's leading us. He's telling us these stories and he's leading us to see and to think more and more about Jesus as no mere man, nor even specifically just a chosen man, but much, much more than that. Just like in chapter 12, Jesus himself is leading us along when he says in chapter 12, verse six, something greater than the temple is here. Or he says in verse 41 of chapter 12, something greater than Jonah is here, greater than a prophet of God. Verse 42 of chapter 12, something greater than Solomon is here, the greatest king of Israel's history. Something greater is here, greater than the temple, greater than the prophet, greater than the king. And the disciples are seeing it now more clearly than ever. Jesus walks on a storm-tossed sea. Something is greater is here, indeed. So Matthew says very plainly now in verse 32, those who are in the boat worship him. Then you are certainly God's son. His divine nature is so pronounced at times that they cannot withhold worship. And Jesus lets them. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, hey, guys, no, really. I'm just a man like you. And he's not a man like them. He's a real man, but not like them. The person in that man is God's son, God the son. Worshiping him, it's not just allowed by him. That's where he's been leading them to come to a place of worship so that they would give themselves to him, adore him for who he is because God should be the center of everything. He made everything. Christ made everything. The, the, the God who made the universe and this world and every beautiful, amazing thing in it, he was in this man, Jesus. What's it say in Colossians chapter two? All the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in him and they're worshiping him. He is to be given what belongs only to God because he is God. His own words in other places affirm that. Come unto me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the bread of life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the light of the world. He wasn't shy about that. He came to reveal God in him to us. Who is like Jesus? He is the only God there is, the only God with whom we have to do. And for us who know him, what a privilege to be objects, to actually be the objects of his love and his concern and his sovereign care. And because he's always with us, these words can come to us on our very worst days. 
Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Trust him. His, his divinity is the rock on which all his love and compassion rests. And it's an absolute, boundless, infinite power behind his love and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these profound reminders of your love. Increase our faith through trials if necessary, storms of your choosing. They are designed by you for us. Give us the wisdom to trust you with that. We have just one life to live here and you've chosen us to serve you right in the place that you have us. So we pray that you'd give us that grace to see with the eyes of faith that Christ is with us every step of the way. We thank you and we love you. In his name we pray, amen.